You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. On this week's show, we're going to spend part of the hour in the world of new music to preview the upcoming Mizzou International Composers Festival. And then we're traveling back in time to northern India in 1857, the year of the Siege of Lucknow on the scene of a barbarous part of British military and Indian history. Our guide for this time travel is author Jocelyn Cullity, who's fictionalized a account of this historical event is the inspiration for her book, Amar and the Silk-Winged Pigeons. Jocelyn and I both have direct ancestral links to the siege, and we'll be talking both about her book, as well as the responsibilities of the historical fiction writer when they are dealing with real events and people. But first, it is a delight to welcome back to the studio Dr. Jacob Gottlieb, the Managing Director of the Mizzou New Music Initiative and a member of the university's composition faculty. He's also the erstwhile host of the Mother instead of music show on Louisville's WXOX community radio station, a composer of electroacoustic music and a passionate proponent of the creation and promotion of contemporary music. Hello, Jacob. Hi, Diana. It's an honor to be here as always. Well, welcome back. It's been almost exactly a year since you were last on the show when we were talking about last year's New Music Festival. So I wonder, what do you think about when you're not thinking about music or is there not a not a time of day that exists. Are you continually thinking about music? Well, since I last saw you, my daughter was born. Oh, so, congratulations. Yeah, so I spend a lot of time uh, <laughs> hanging out with her and thinking about her and my family, obviously. But yeah, the job here definitely keeps me busy. So we, yeah. have, a, we have a lot of events, a lot of things going on all throughout the year. But this uh, Mizzou International Composers Festival is obviously our biggest one. Culminates this coming week. One of the questions I didn't get around to asking you last year when you were on the show is what do you listen to when you're in the car? Does it listen to new music all the way or does your Spotify list include Metallica and Beyonce? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> Those two in particular and much, much more, yeah. So I, I do listen to uh, I, I listen to a lot of metal. I listen to a lot of electronic music, a lot of hip-hop, uh, a, a lot of contemporary music too, obviously. Uh, everything all throughout the spectrum, indie rock. But when I'm not in the mood for music, I have a stable of podcasts that I listen to and I share an audible account with my wife so sometimes we like to listen to books together which is fun. Well I do not listen to new music in the car but I really do want to uh, thank you hugely for the way that you explained new music to me on last year's show and how your explanation really opened my ears to listening in a different way. You said to listen to the compositions as soundscapes to imagine I was listening to the audio track for a movie and to think about what the sounds I was hearing evoked and instead of looking for traditional music patterns I should simply let the sounds play in my brain or words to that effect but it was really powerful and not only did it help me listen to the world premieres concert with new ears but it also gave me a different appreciation for artists like Frank Zappa who I had struggled to listen to before and who is my husband's favorite musician so you know it's always on um, but I could never understand it but your explanation really helped me so thank you very much 
Yeah, and uh, I'm very glad that you reminded me of that because I think that was one of my better on-air moments <laughs> was the moment where I gave you the ex explanation. I've listened back to that. And I'm like, huh, I'm not usually that cogent on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> It was perfect. Now, I know this is a hard question to answer because I think we talked about it last year, but explain for us what new music is. Because at some level, everything we hear in the pop charts is new music, but that's not what we're talking about here. So how does it define itself? Yeah, the word new is the tricky word there. And on the one hand, you're absolutely right that anything that we hear is new in the sense of contemporaneous, as in happening right now or in the recent past. But the word new in this context also means novel or unusual or either undefined or newly defined, right? So new doesn't just mean music that's being made now, but it also means a fresh conception of music, a novel idea about what music is, what it could do, what its elements are, and how they work. So the definition includes contemporaneousness, and also novelty at the same time. It always seems to be categorized under classical yes. music. So wh why is that? Uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, one, mostly because of the training of the composers and the performers. Most composers and performers of new music are trained in conservatories or schools of music that give you a classical training and a background in Western classical music. And so a lot of the instruments that these composers write for are Western orchestral instruments, things that you would find in an orchestra, violins, cellos, flutes, clarinets, and so on and so forth. But their resemblance, the music's resemblance to the music of the classical period that, we're, that we think about when we think about what those instruments play can be closer or further away. Sometimes it's a little bit closer and sometimes uh, composers write sounds for those instruments that you would never even imagine. So uh, different composers have different relationships to Western classical music and different ways of engaging with that history that they were trained with. And that's one of the fascinating things about the field is the spectrum of that engagement. Is new music limited to Western music or is there a new music movement within Eastern music? Absolutely. So this is this is getting into territory that I'm not so familiar with, but one of my good friends back at home, he plays frequently in Middle Eastern ensembles, and he's played uh, tr uh, traditional Middle Eastern music, traditional Balkan music. He sometimes even plays traditional Far Eastern music and, or, and even Turkish music. He... He tracks the development of ensembles of this music, and surprisingly, there are a lot of composers in Eastern or non-Western traditions that are writing contemporary music that is just as rooted in their tradition as new music in the West is rooted in the Western tradition. So I'm not qualified to be able to talk about that in any great depth, but it is totally fascinating to see that those traditions are just as alive, if not more so, than the Western classical tradition. What, what do you love about new music? What attracts you to it? So what's always attracted to me is just sounds. Because when I think back to why I wanted to be a composer, why I wanted to create my own music and study composition is it starts with a love of sound. I love hearing new sounds. I love, I love it, the experience when a sound catches my ear that I've never heard before, or when 
a sound that I have heard a million times suddenly feels fresh and new to me. I love sounds and I love playing with sounds and I love listening how other composers play with sounds and I love it when I'm placed in uh, a territory that is unfamiliar to me. I love the experience of being able to be placed in an unfamiliar world and seeing how I can navigate through it. And that's not to say that I don't love more conventional music. I certainly do, as, as, as I said to you earlier. But to me, very few things compared to the experience of totally being confronted with this new thing and being able to wrestle with it or navigate around it or trying to understand this and the and the way it expands my conception of what music can do is sound limited to musical instruments or sound could be anything when you're talking about soundscapes and loving sound absolutely yeah rustling of trees water yeah a sound can be absolutely anything and as you know one of the one of the founding thinkers of our field is a is someone named john cage and he was really responsible for opening up this idea that music is not the sound that is produced but is in the way that you listen to the sound so he got that idea from marcel duchamp where the frame is the artwork and not the artwork itself so uh, and obviously, composers of contemporary music work with all kinds of sounds. They're attracted to writing for orchestral instruments because of the way that those performers have such a fine, nuanced control over their instrument for years of study and the variety of sounds and expressions that they can make. But there are lots of composers of electronic music that sample sounds from all over the world. And even many composers who write for instruments in the percussion section of their pieces, they'll frequently include a variety of miscellaneous objects that make sound. So you'll probably hear some of those in the uh, premieres at the festival this year too. Did you think about becoming a sound engineer rather than a composer? Yes, I did. I mean, so in in my own training, those things weren't highly separate. But uh, and so, you know, I did obviously learn a lot about, you know, sound equipment and mixing and recording and live sound and, and so on and so forth as part of my basic training. But I, what I really loved is the creative aspect. And so to me, those tools, the tools that one learns in the engineering side of things, they were only as interesting to me as I could use them to produce my own work, I guess I should say. Tell us about your own work. Your uh, music is electroacoustic. What are you hoping to illuminate through your music? Yeah, so like I said, my own music uh, goes back to this foundational feeling of being in love with sound. So I write for all, all, kinds of, uh, all kinds of media, not just electronics and not just instruments, frequently combinations of both or sometimes either. But what I'm always looking for is a way to discover something new. And when I'm writing for a performer, I'm interested in cultivating a relationship with them where they can challenge me about the capabilities of their instrument and I can challenge them as well to think about new approaches to how they play or new sounds that they could make or ways to combine the traditional roles of their instrument and the traditional ways it makes sound with something completely new. Do you compose a piece of music and then find a musician who you like who can play it or do musicians come to you and say I want to explore your kind of soundscapes? Mostly it's the latter, uh, especially recently it's been mostly the latter, which is great because, like I said, I'm really, when I'm writing for performers, I'm interested in 
a collaborative relationship with that performer. So if a performer says to me, I want to work on a piece with you, I say, great, and we work on it together. And I always tell our students that this is the best way to get your music out there because if you simply write something and then try to find someone to play it, yeah, maybe they'll play it, but they won't be particularly invested in it because it's just like, well, e even if you're my friend, you know, here's just this piece. I don't really know much about it. But if you involve a performer from the beginning of the process and work on a piece together, then they feel invested because they've, they've put themselves in this piece and it becomes theirs. And once it becomes theirs, they'll want to play it over and over and over and over again. And is that part of the process where you have alarm will sound of the big ensemble that are here for the Mizzou International Composers Festival? You have the composers coming in, they've been composing, they know they're composing for alarm will sound. Um, does alarm will sound take some of those compositions and continue to work with the composers and, and move that piece forward? Yes, frequently. That, that frequently happens at this festival where at least some of the pieces continue to have a life afterwards with alarm will sound particularly, but even beyond alarm will sound, like I can think of several composers who were here, uh, one that comes to mind is Paul Dooley. He wrote, he, I believe, was in the very first MICF in 2010. He wrote a piece for Alarm Will Sound, which they played at the festival and then a couple times after, but then he made different kinds of arrangements of that piece for different ensembles, wind, wind ensemble, orchestra, and so forth. And that piece took on a huge life of its own and made him quite successful because of the different kinds of versions that he made of that piece besides just the alarm will sound version. So yeah, frequently pieces that are premiered at this festival have a life that goes way beyond, whether it's with alarm will sound or even beyond alarm will sound. And this year you have a number of events that are being co-produced by Dismal Niche, yes. which organizes the annual Columbia Experimental Music Festival. So again, kind of definition wise, what is the difference between new music and experimental music? That is a fantastic question. And I think about that very, very often simply because there is so much overlap. So to me, the term experimental music is a bit more broad. So I like to think genre of genres and practices of music as kind of uh, circles. And the edge of each circle is an experimental practice of that genre. And so for the classical genre or the Western classical practice, the edge or experimental practice is new music. But experimental music in general includes the overlap of all of the edges of these circles. And frequently, the experimental edges of the circles of all of the genres are closer to each other than they are to the center of those circles. Right. I, it's a complicated analogy. It'd be easier to see. <laughs> but I have huge respect for everything that uh, Matt Crook does here in Colombia. And his experimental music festival tends to include many different circles, including rock, including jazz some uh, classical as well, some electronic music. Whereas maybe our contemporary music festival, Mizzou International Composers Festival, maybe focuses a little bit more on the edge practice of this one particular circle. It seems like the electroacoustic is, is the crossover here, at least for this year. You have an event, I think, coming up next Friday with, at Cafe Berlin with mm -hmm. Bell Slantano, yes. which is the stage name of a professor at the university, right? Yeah, Brett Bowman. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And so he's playing an evening, a set of experimental music, but incorporating works by some of the composers. Yes, he, he. I don't know exactly what he's going to do just yet, but he will be incorporating some of the electronic works of the resident composers and also some of the works of our Mizzou student composers who aren't necessarily otherwise represented at the festival, but have taken electronic music courses with him. So he, he has taken some of these student pieces and he will also incorporate them into his set as well. But yes, you're, you're totally correct that... Uh, 
electronic music is often the glue between contemporary music or new music and some of the other experimental practices in other fields. I know Alarm Will Sound had in the past performed with or performed music of Aphex Twin, yes. who was absolutely one of my favorite um, mine too. Mine, groups to listen to, or I don't know if they call them really a group, I don't know what they are. It's, well, it's, it's, it's one, one person. <laughs> one it, person, okay. Yeah, there's one guy. I yeah. loved Aphex Twin growing up. So this is predominantly a composition festival. Are there other composition festivals around the world? Yes, there are many. What is different about this one? What's different about this one is the the kind of depth and the extent of the relationship that the invited composers have with Alarm Will Sound in particular. So even though in commemoration of this 10th annual festival, we've expanded the programming uh, quite significantly, the core of the festival is still the experience for the resident composers of working this intensively with an ensemble the size and renown of Alarmal Sound, because that is kind of the thing that this festival was designed to address. In other festivals, even if uh, your work is being played by an ensemble that's like Alarmal Sound in terms of size or in terms of renown, you don't get to have the kind of deep working relationship with them. You frequently, it's frequently two or three rehearsals max if you're lucky, and then the performance, and then that's it. They They forget about you and you move on. I've participated in several of these festivals myself as a composer, so I know very well. But this festival is special because the composers get to work with Alarmal Sound for a whole week, very, very in-depth. And so, again, going back to this collaborative relationship, everybody is invested in the in the final result in a way that you wouldn't if you just showed up and the ensemble was there to pay, uh, pay to play your piece. They rehearse it a couple times, boom, everybody goes home, you know. Now, part of the experience for the resident composers is also that you have two guest composers who are further on in their career and so yes. they're working also hand in hand with those uh, guest composers so what what do you hope that the resident composers the ones that you've invited to be here take away at the end of this time in Colombia? well i hope that they kind of get a better sense of what their music is a clear sense of what their own artistic vision is a clear sense of what it's like to realize a composition of this scope and to get all kinds of different feedback on their work you know they they not only work with the guest composers who kind of serve as sort of the faculty here but they also spend Monday and Tuesday giving presentations of their own music to each other. So I hope that they interact with each other and and they give feedback to each other about their own work and that everybody kind of comes away with a head just brimming full of ideas and full of things to think about and new directions to try and a higher degree of illumination about their own artistic purpose. You have a real cross-section of composers this year. You have one who is already an assistant professor. You have yes. a composer in residence at another school. You have people who have written school for film and stage they're all at really different stages of their career so how do you meet all their needs so you throw them all in a pit and you have them fight it out no no i'm just kidding so yeah it's it's a great question but so i think that I frequently think about something that my former teacher at the University of Buffalo said, and he also runs a festival that's you know similar to this called June in Buffalo, and he said that there can be no fire without friction. So when we get together to choose the participating resident composers from the enormous piles of applications that we get every year, our mission is to choose 
a high and wide variety of composers, stylistic from different stylistic backgrounds, from different educational backgrounds, from different geographic regions, all of whom, if we put them together in a small space, they will be able to create some fire, right? And so the bigger variety in terms of education, in terms of style, in terms of background, in terms of geography, the better, the more brighter this fire burns. Last year, when I had two of the guest composers on the show, we had Amanda Fury and Gemma Peacock, and we were talking about how difficult it is to be a person of color or a woman or transgender in this new music community. And yes. so it was very nice to see that this year that you have you have three women, you have one transgender woman, you have uh, an Asian American, and you have a real mixture of backgrounds. So how... When you're choosing the A-resident composers, how anonymous is the process? Because you are, it seems like you are making conscious decisions to include a, a different group of people and bring them together. Yes, and the submission process for this festival is not anonymous for this precise reason. So at Mizzou, we have a couple other competitions that we do during the school year that are anonymous, but this one is not. And you've explained the reason exactly why, because, because it's so important for us to choose composers of different gender, racial, geographic, stylistic backgrounds. We want to know who they are. We're not choosing them just for their music. We're choosing them for them, right? We're choosing them for the entire artistic being that they are, right. you know, which encapsulates all of their histories and all of their backgrounds. So yes, that's that's certainly a consideration when we, you know, when we choose the composers because we feel like we have a responsibility to help the field move forward in this direction and to address some of these systemic injustices that, you know, our field has perpetuated and been complicit in over time. So um, this year's festival schedule kicks off next Monday with the resident composer presentations, and that's not open to the public, but there are a series of rehearsals and events that the public can attend. Mm -hmm. um, and then really it kicks off next Thursday. So what are some of the big events people should put on their calendars? So the biggest events are the ones that take place at the Missouri Theater on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Thursday, Alarm Will Sound plays their opening concert at the Missouri Theater at 7.30 p.m., and that includes a concert version of uh, guest composer Donica Denicki's opera, the Hunger. And this was a fully staged opera that Alarm Will Sound has done uh, a few times in the past. And actually, Donica Dennehy had workshopped this opera back at this festival in 2012. So as a way of celebrating the 10th annual festival, we brought him back to do the full version of the opera that was born here. So uh, they'll be performing the concert version of that opera, which means no staging, just music. And then they'll be performing a scene from an opera by Amy Beth Kirsten, our uh, other uh, guest composer. And it's just a scene from this opera that she is working on with Alarmal Sound called Jacob in Chains. And so this is kind of a new thing that we've been kind of trying to do with Alarmal Sound during the festival is premiering scenes of these operas that composers are writing for them. Last year, Alex Minchek premiered a scene of his opera Chimeras. And this year, Amy Beth Kirsten is premiering a scene from Jacob in Chains. So you have these two operas, or I guess maybe one and, and a half operas, and then a work by our uh, artistic director and composition faculty member, Stefan Freund, called uh, Con Influences. And that's Thursday night. But that's the, the big night. event is is Saturday. That's, that's the, the, the seven or eight, is it eight world premieres? Eight world premieres, eight premieres right. Okay. Yeah, so Saturday, the concluding concert is Alarm Will Sound at the Missouri Theater, also at 7.30 p.m., and that's eight world premieres. So these are the new pieces by the eight resident composers we've selected who have written pieces specifically for this festival. And they've worked with Alarm Will Sound on these works all week, 
and they will finally be performed in public at this concert on Saturday night. And in celebration of your 10th anniversary, all the concerts are free this year. Yes, that was that was kind of the biggest thing that we've decided to do this year is that everything is free. There are no tickets for any events. The doors are wide open for everything. So please just come. Including events at places like Cafe Berlin. Yes. All the events. And there's a couple of pop-up concerts. Uh, one of the one of the biggest expansions of this festival is that we are including the Kemia Ensemble, which consists of a few faculty members here at the university, including composition faculty Carolina Heredia and Brett Bowman, who are the artistic directors, and our cello professor, Ellie Lara, also plays cello in that group. So they are performing three times during the festival. Two pop-up concerts, one on Thursday at 1 p.m. outside of Sparky's on 9th Street, one on Friday at 1 p.m. inside of Uprise Bakery, and then a full ensemble concert, uh, including multimedia and electronics and visuals uh, in Whitmore Recital Hall on Saturday at 11 a.m. So we're very excited to have them here to, to also perform. And all of the information you can find on the website, which is newmusic.missouri.edu, and then follow the links to MICF, Missouri yeah. International Composers Festival. You can, you can go straight to the MICF page by going to composersfestival.missouri.edu. .edu, and then you can see a full schedule of events from there. I would definitely recommend if people have time and an inclination to go to the World Premieres concert. I went last year. I didn't know what to expect, and it was really an amazing experience. And this year, it's totally free of charge. So it's in this beautiful theater. There wasn't there wasn't that many people there, and I was kind of sad, as I always am when I go to lots of events in Colombia, that more people aren't able to come out. Well, we're hoping that ev- the fact that everything is free this year means that there, there's literally no barrier to entry. The door is wide open so there's nothing stopping you take the time and come on in it's good to challenge yourself and go to something that you're not sure if you're going to like because then you come away and you find out sure something new yeah and the worst that could happen is that you don't like it but you're at least not out of any money i was hoping we had time to play some music but we are out of time but there is a link on my facebook page to some of the music that you could hear last year at last year's uh, international festivals composer international Composers Festival. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jacob. Thank you so much, Diana. It's always a pleasure. The Missouri International Composers Festival kicks off next Monday, but the big events start next Thursday and continue through Saturday evening. You can find a full schedule of the festival's concerts and events online, and all of this year's concerts are totally free to attend. And I am delighted also that two of the resident composers will be joining me in the studio on next week's Speaking of the Arts. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to author Jocelyn Cullity about her book, Amar and the Silk-Winged Pigeons, and the process of writing historically accurate fiction. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Although my second guest and I did not meet until right now, today, her great-great-great-aunt and uncle and my great-grandfather probably knew each other. At the very least, they likely suffered the same post-traumatic stress caused by the most brutal and shameful event in Anglo-Indian history, the Siege of Lucknow, known to the British as the Indian Mutiny and to the Indians as the First War of Independence. The history of the British in India is long and dates back to 1600 when Queen Elizabeth I granted a charter to the East India Company to trade in the Far East. The East India Company, although a private company, became over the next 250 years de facto agents 
influence for the British government. And after the turn of the 18th century, not only became increasingly hostile and antagonistic to the Hindu and Muslim rulers, but also much more ruthless in their annexations. In January 1856, the last Muslim kingdom in India, the Kingdom of Awad, was annexed by the East India Company. The size of Scotland, its capital was Lucknow, a city which then had a population of 600,000 people. The subsequent British administration was poor, promises were broken, and humiliations were piled on the royal family. This then was the tinderbox for the events that occurred in Lucknow in 1857, and which are the factual inspiration for my guest Jocelyn Carlett's work of historic fiction called Amar and the Silk-Winged Pigeons. Jocelyn, welcome to Speaking of the Arts. Thank you so much for having me. I have been so excited to meet Jocelyn. I've known about my family's history in Lucknow probably for about 15 20 years but it was just a distant story in the past and your book has opened up for me my ancestral parts and I am so grateful to you for all that you've given me my uncle is an incredible historian and he's the family historian and so he has given many talks on the siege of Lucknow and his background information has been invaluable to me in preparing to talk to you so thank you Nick Donoghue if indeed you are listening in Newport Wales so Jocelyn tell me the story about how you became acquainted with the siege of Well, when I was 14, my mother took me to this little village in England called uh, Wanish, where my family had gone after they had lived in India, after the 1947, when the English were finally kicked out of India. My relatives all moved back to England, and there was a diary there written by Alex Huxham, who was my great-great-great-aunt, and she was in the residency that was held hostage, so to speak, during the resistance by the Indians. And my mother said, you know, there's no photocopier in the village. Let's just copy this out by hand. And so I, it was my job to copy it out by hand. And of course, that event stuck with me after reading her and writing out her diary over five months of being held in the residency. So that is where I, I first became aware of this history. And I went on to study it um, at the University of Toronto as an undergraduate. And then years later, um, you know, uh, writing fiction, I thought I'd really love to work with this. So I I wrote a short story and realized, you know, I really loved the characters. So that was what sort of started me on the journey to do the research to write this book. And that that took actually 10 years of research. I became rather obsessed with, with it. But also, because the English won in Lucknow, Of course, there was a lot more information on the story from the winner's point of view and not from the Indian point of view. And so although the book began with a character who was very much based on my great-great-great-aunt, I ended up uh, becoming much more interested in the Indian point of view, particularly the woman's point of view, and that took a lot longer to uncover during that time. So you mentioned the residency. Explain exactly what was happening in Lucknow. What, what is the background to this event? So um, the English, as you said rightly, they came in in 1856. They told Wajid Ali Shah, the king, the last king of India, that they were going to be taking over Lucknow, taking over the, his princely kingdom, Avad. And uh, he said, what? No, you can't do this. So he went to Calcutta to fight it with the English his superiors there. And um, during that time, the Indians in Lucknow very much resented what was going on. Um, 
And what happened was, and this took a lot of finding out, uh, a woman named Begum Hazrat Mahal ended up being the key woman who decided to resist what was happening. So they were taking over all his buildings. Um, they had their own headquarters called the residency. And they, the British had their the own, British had yeah. their own uh, headquarters, and so the whole town was just being taken over as if, as if they'd won a war. And Wajid Ali Shah had not signed a treaty, had not signed anything, but they just went ahead and did it anyways. Under so, the doctrine of lapse, as yes, they called it. Exactly. So that sort of, you know, and there were all sorts of reasons, you know, to, for the English had for taking over territory. Um, but anyways, so that's sort of the background. And then they uh, were held in the residency while the Indians started to resist. They wanted to just get them out of Lucknow. And uh, Sir Henry Lawrence took everybody, women and children, all the men, put them in the residency, and they they were going to fight uh, the in Indians from that headquarters. And over five months, it was quite incredible because they did get out. They escaped, you know, five months later with reinforcements that were sent from England to sort of crush this resistance. And so that's sort of it in a nutshell. And after that, um, in March 1858, with more reinforcements, they came back in. And, you know, it's not a spoiler because everybody knows they took, I mean, they, they took over the whole city. They looted. And that's when all the records were lost and destroyed. Books, valuable, everything. A lot of Lucknow's um, jewelry from the palaces, um, other beautiful, valuable uh, items got sent to England. And some of them are still in Windsor Castle. Probably museums, the British Museum probably well. has some yeah. too. We looted a lot of places around the world. So how many people were in the residency? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I'm trying to remember now. I think in the end, I could be, com uh, I should have brought this note, but I think it's fi it was 5,000 to begin with, and I think it was maybe about 3,000 at the end, and that's about right. I don't know, I don't have the figure exactly, but that's that's about it. So they, there was a lot of people who were lost. Ellen Huxham, my great-great-great-aunt, who wrote the diary, she lost her little girl, and she had a son as well. So her husband, George, and, and Ellen, and, and the son were survivors. She was actually the oldest survivor in the end. She died in Boxhall, in, in England, in, at the age of 93 my great grandfather so i have less generations in my family than you, you do in yours and so it was my great grandfather who at the age of 17 was in the 32nd regiment of foot which is one of the main battalions that was stationed in lucknow yeah. and so he we have a family medal for the defense of lucknow which means that he survived well, obviously wow. i know he survived the siege because i'm here um, but he managed to not get killed during that mm. awful five months and get out and then what i found out just yesterday if i'm understanding my uncle correctly is that his father-in-law to be was also at Lucknow and he either was he came in with the relieving troops mm -hmm. with uh, Havelock or else he came in in 1858 when they um, when they conquered wow. Lucknow so I have two family connections and so I had no idea and now I feel obsessed with this story I've ordered other books I've been reading online there's another diary I guess very similar to your great 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 aunts and that's by Julia Inglis who was mm -hmm. the wife of one of the uh, main commanders there and just reading through that her day-by-day -day account of this five months when every day 
people were dying, they were burying children, they were burying their husbands, and they did not know whether they were going to be killed that same day too, because there were mines coming in, they were mining underground and blowing things up, there were shots coming over the top of the um, battlements or the enforcements that they had put out. I cannot imagine how awful it was, but at the same time, you know, you're, I'm reading your story and I'm feeling such survivor's guilt as an English person reading about how badly the Indians were treated or the Laknavis were treated. Yes, and you know, in 2007, the 150th anniversary of the Great Mutiny, as the English call it, you know, it really was their 9-11 of the 19th century. Um, it was the most, Edward Said called it, the most violent engagement between the Indians and the English that there ever was. So in 2007, a lot of books were republished, a lot of military histories in England, all again going over all the strategies that they had and, and whatnot, and I just found it quite amazing that they would have, um, that still there was very little from the Indian point of view. And so, you know, Rosie Llewellyn Jones, who is an English historian and the world expert, I would say, on Lucknow, her work has been absolutely magnificent and relatively recent. So she is the one, she wrote a book called The Indian Uprising, um, particularly that really points out through fastidious look, looking at letters written between different Englishmen, uh, particularly, and archives in Calcutta or, or, or Lucknow still that have been sitting there for ages, looking through these things and, and really piecing together all the oppression that really went on in that city by the English. And so we have a lot of work and a lot of stories about the residency and romance were written right afterwards from the English point of, point of view. And, and this is where, and this was my big discovery, the Muslims were absolutely disproportionately blamed for the violence. And so, you know, there's this longer history of what we're seeing today. It's exactly the same sort of thing that had happened there. So it was very sad and, and really compelled me to only focus on the Indian point of view in the end. So your main character is called Amar. Tell us about Amar. So Amar is a composite character. The King Wajid Ali Shah had a what uh, he called the Rose Platoon, and it was a, a, a group of female bodyguards who protected him. And they had one of the most important jobs of protecting his, his valuables and things. But he, he also, we can tell because they used rifles, that they were highly skilled and highly respected in terms of their ability to to work and mostly it had been ceremonial it had all been ceremonial their work uh, before this uprising began but the, these women if you look at those english books you barely see a mention of them and yet they were absolutely instrumental to the to the uprising and i i brought you know the first anecdote that i found in one of these english texts a soldier had written and this was something that really first got me interested in these women he wrote in his diary about the fact that a woman sitting in a people tree picked off Highlanders as they came into the garden and within her range. A number of bodies was observed piling up under the tree, and a sergeant was ordered to shoot into the branches. This he did, and a body fell to the ground, its bodice opening to reveal a woman soldier. But she was not Indian. The dead woman was one of Wajid Ali Shah's Amazons, a group of African women brought in as slaves who formed part of the Nawab's retinue. They were dressed in men's uniform and rode on horseback to accompany their master. So that was the first thing I read, and I thought, oh my goodness, this is, I mean, that's, this is wild. I had no idea that there were African women in Lucknow at the time. I'd been focusing on Indian women. 
And again, relatively recently, Rosie Llewellyn Jones went to Windsor Castle and she was asked to identify some of the loot. And what she found was a, an autobiography by Wajid Ali Shah that had pictures of all of his wives. And Begum Hazrat Mahal, the woman who led the resistance, his ex-wife, is, his ex-wife is clearly half African at least. So it's now known, so this was 2014, so it's all incredibly recent that there's an understanding that the person who ran this was not was half Indian, half African, or mo- probably from Ethiopia or Eritrea, we're not sure. So it's, it's fascinating uh, history. Now there is a long history of Africans in India, so they've been traveling there for centuries, yes. for a millennia before the events of 1857. Yes. But in your book, Amar is, uh, her grandmother was brought over. So she was, mm-hmm. Amar's born in India, but she is of uh, Ethiopian descent. descent. Yes. And so that, so uh, Ambegam Hazrat Mathal was, was also, was she born in India? Yes. Her father was an African slave, again, probably from Ethiopia, and her mother was his mistress. And they were from Faizabad, a, a city nearby. And she was brought to the palace to learn how to dance at an early age. And so she was brought up and trained to dance by courtesans in the palace. Another of the main characters in your book, and a, a real historic figure, as we were talking about, is Begam Hazrat Mahal, or Begam Sahiba, as she's called in your book. What, what do we know about her in real life? Well, just that what I said, that she was brought to the uh, palace and that she was trained as a dancer and that Wajid Ali Shah was besotted with her for a long, long time. Uh, They were divorced because of his mother, I think probably because his mother was really getting tired. He, He married probably 360 women, which was not what was really done and the his mum was getting sort of tired of it and and anyway he she forced him to divorce four wives and she was one of them there's some question rosie llewellyn jones has about whether you know it was because she was half african because the i will say this is perhaps a generalization and it is a generalization but a resistance against darker women in India was was there at the time as well. So that might have been a reason, but she gave her reason was that it was a superstition, that they'd found a, a mark on her neck that had shown that she was going to, if she was remain married, Wajid Ali's sons were, at, you know, at threatened by by her existence there. Anyway, I try to go over all of this in the new book, the sequel to to this book. The Envy of Paradise, and that comes out this October. That's right. And going forward from the book, I mean, she was very involved, you mentioned, she was very involved in the resistance. Mm -hmm. She was, the king had left and gone to Calcutta to try and plead his case to the British, and she was left in the royal palace. And so she was really instrumental in organizing the uprising in your book. Is that true Yes, in real life too. Absolutely. If you look at all the different resistances that happened, she remained absolutely tied with the royal family so that, you know, popular resistance that broke out all over Awad, people were absolutely committed to her because her son was Wajid Ali Shah's son and that still remained as most important. They were absolutely devoted to the royal family and incensed that they had just sort of ousted 
their king. And so she remained the, the not only the figurehead, but she, the, the son was the figurehead, but she was the one, the mastermind, with different soldiers that were key to Wajid Ali Shah's army who worked with her. So yeah, she was at, she, she issued a counter proclamation to Queen Victoria when Queen Victoria took over the country ultimately in 1858. And so, you know, she fought right up until the bitter end, so to speak. And her ex-mother-in-law, who clearly disliked her, had gone to England to plead her case with Queen Victoria yes. and to no avail, right. and then sadly died on the way back and mm-hmm. is buried in a grave in Paris, which has lots of errors on it. Yes, really sad. So if you'd written the novel from the viewpoint of Ellen Huxham, the people you write about with such tenderness and sympathy would have been brutal and abominable traitors to her. If she read your book she'd be kind of horrified by the tenderness that you give to them. How do you reconcile that with your ancestry? Well, you know, I did feel like that for a long time. I worried about my mother reading the book because my mother, you know, had had heard all these stories a little more directly than I had. But our photo albums are full of some of the magazines at the time that showed the Indians as these horrible people coming in at windows, lurking behind women's bedrooms, all this sort of thing. But I don't also, but at the same time, there was an incredible tenderness there by a lot of people towards Indians. So it's sort of like, maybe this isn't a great example, but think of what's happening in our country right now and how many people are actually very sympathetic to the people who are being perhaps destroyed or persecuted by our government right now. It's the same sort of thing. There was a lot of people, and so even in the... I mean, obviously, it was terrifying in the residency. There's no getting around that. But they had lived there for five generations. And there was an enormous sense of, um, I don't know if I would say community, but there was a lot of engagement, real engagement between Indians and English people. So I don't think it would be exactly that cut and dry. There were also a lot of Indians who came into the residency to support the English. So there's these complexities at play. But yeah, sure. I tend to think she would say, yes, that was a terrifying experience, but there's a lot to be said for for what, what the Indians were trying to do. You write so evocatively of the city of Lucknow, the royal palaces, the fragrant trees, warm cardamom, the sharp smell of marigolds, the steam from the chai wallace silver pot, and the silk-winged birds. You make me feel like I was there. I felt really transported by it. I would, I would read the book, and I was visiting some friends in Georgia last weekend, and they live on top of a mountain overlooking a city, and it was breezy up there. And I sat there reading it, and every time I'd look up, I'd feel like I was in kind of an Indian hill station. And it took me, when I wandered off to go and do something, it took me five or ten minutes to get my head back into 2019 because I was so in the city of Lucknow in 1857. It was such powerful writing. Wow, well, that's very kind of you, Diana. So thank you. And so when when the English start tearing the city apart and ruining the sewage system and trampling over tradition, it's heart-wrenching. And I say I, I felt so guilty as an English person for what had gone on in the past. But in Sir Henry Lawrence, who was appointed the chief commissioner just prior to the siege, you have a figure who seems to be a saviour. He's in that grey area you're talking about where he's a, he's a good British man who sees the damage that's being done and is kind of horrified by it. How much of his distaste for that change in Lucknow is historically documented? Absolutely accurate. And because he's Sir Henry... Uh, Lawrence, there are, you know, a lot of, he wrote a book himself. Uh, So there's a lot of 
research available, documents available to show how he felt. And, you know, he does represent for me that older generation, uh, particularly, who who really felt there was a sort of idea that there was these new Englishmen coming forward who did not know anything about the language, the culture, and were just sort of coming in and, and, and with very greedy motives, whereas somebody like Sir Henry Lawrence had lived there again his whole life and um, very much felt like, what is going on? But he was he was outnumbered by the the rest of his office, so to speak, who, who felt that he was very impatient with him, feeling like he was giving them too much. And, you know, and then he was sadly killed in the residency. And, you know, unfortunately, there there were some of his men who said, well, again, he he had that coming. They didn't, that's not exactly what they said, but that was the kind of thing because he had actually tried to communicate and try and work this out on a more respectful level. There's a passage in Julia Inglis's diary dated May the 18th, 1857, where she says, I sat next to Sir Henry. He was very grave and silent. He told me that he considered the annexation of Awad the most unrighteous act that was ever committed. Mm. So yeah, he must have been just horrified what was going on. Would you read a passage from the book for us? It was hard for me to choose one that was my favourite because every page is so beautifully sculpted. I'd often read a sentence and go back and just read it again because it was just so gorgeous. But let's go with the opening passage of the book, which is dated March 1856. Okay. Ama first realises how much she loves the city of Lucknow in the same month she first fears losing it. March in 1856 is unusually dusty and anxious. The Gompti River, cutting east and west through the city, does not swell with boisterous bathers. Smoke from funeral pyres hangs suspended in the air. The ashes taken out to the middle of the river by boatsmen glitter black and gold before they vanish in the water. Cool dawns brim with the sharp edges of things to come. Thousands of Englishmen want to take over Lucknow, and Amma stands alone in the crowded market, observing the English East India Company's auction. The noise of frightened animals fills the sky. The Englishmen have emptied stables and menageries all over the city, and now they are selling off horses, elephants, camels, cheetahs, and silk-winged pigeons to foreign merchants. Amma's favorite horse is among them. A brown whaler from Australia, a gift from the king to show his admiration for her riding skills. Years of training and careful breeding are being purposely erased like pencil with rubber, like they hope to erase his majesty. Ama pushes through the crowd to the lineup of horses. An Englishman with red hair and a dimpled chin bars her way. She smells whiskey on his breath, hears hatred in his English words. He puts his hand across her rifle and stops her from going forward. She reaches out to stroke her mare despite him. The auctioneer mops his face with a handkerchief, slams down his hammer, and nods toward an Indian merchant, a foreigner from far away. The Englishman's hand stays firm against Ama. The horses have sold, African slave boy, the man says. Boy, she understands the word, what they often call out to men in the streets. Boy, her hair is cut short. She wears a red jacket and rose-colored silk trousers. The man doesn't recognize her as a young woman, but she does not care to correct him. These horses are royal horses, she says in Urdu, and this is my horse. She can see the man has understood her, but he replies in English. They belong to the king and we've deposed him, he says. It's time to get rid of them, boy. She does not understand. She reaches for her mare's reins, but the company man stops her with his pistol. I said she's already sold. You're trespassing. Get back now. 
the foreign Indian merchant comes forward. He won't meet Amma's eyes. He takes her mare's reins, but he also waits while she holds out to her horse a piece of sugar, spun orange and shaped like a small carrot. She pats the animal's warm flank as if everything is all right. Then she leaves the auction to find Begum Saiba, her friend and the king's ex-wife. Oh, it's such a compelling book. I'm going to read it all over again. Because I read it and then I read the English history and then I read more of the book and I've gone back and forth and now I just need to sit down and read it all the way through again. That's very kind of you, Diana. Now, there is much that is really haunting in the book and I'm thinking about one scene halfway through which is about a hanging, which you describe with such vivid Mm. brutality that if it had been a film, I would have been hiding behind the sofa. Mm. I, I, I could barely read it. I kept looking away. It was really a struggle to read it. How was it to write that? It was awful. In fact, I don't ever go back and reread that. Uh, I found, you know, the, the, the details that I had researched horrendous. And the thing with writing something like this is it makes you feel sad all the time. Yes. And, and that was really difficult. And that's not what I would think was something I liked. You know, I'm not drawn to graphic violence but there was graphic violence in this city at the time and so that was a that was one of the last scenes that I had to write I'd put it off and put it off and and yeah I I rarely go back and look at it it's awful Mm -hmm. I don't think I can read it a second time the genre of historic fiction is generally not one that I feel pulled towards but having read your book and read Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall I Mm -hmm. am very compelled by it and I think the reason that I'm sometimes nervous about reading it is that I'm worried I'm going to, I'm going to pick up historical inaccuracies. Mm-hmm. So as a historic fiction writer, you have a huge responsibility to put the facts forward. How responsible do you feel? Do you feel like it's incumbent upon the reader to go out and do more research and it's not your job? Or do you feel like you have to be accurate? You, it's your responsibility to be as accurate as you possibly can. Saying that, you've, one also remembers that fiction and history are both constructions. You are choosing and selecting details. And that is stressful sometimes because, especially with history, it's what are you choosing over another detail. But yes, you should do your research as much as absolute possible. I'm really struck, actually, you mentioned Wolf Hall. Rosie uh, Llewellyn Jones said to me, she said she'd read a review of that and the reviewer had said, I don't care if there are some historical inaccuracies, things that she might have got wrong because I have a sense of Cromwell so much more from that book than I would by reading a history historical text on it. So it's about the feelings. There's a historical truth and there's emotional truth. And I think the historical writer, fiction writer, is trying to get at what people feel at the time. And that's hard. You're never going to get it exactly right. But if you are doing, if you have gone and immersed yourself in as much history as you possibly can, things will start coming to you. Emotions will come. Humiliation in the case of this book was was something I, I wanted to explore, you know, how one dominant culture can make another feel so humiliated. I wonder if we taught history through the prism of historical fiction in school, whether more people would be interested in it rather than dusty and dry books. I mean, you you brought this period of time to life for me in a way that even though I knew about it my uncle had told me I was like "Mm, whatever but it was your book that made me want to research it more and to understand more about my past well that's terrific that's exactly what it's all worthwhile when somebody says something (laughs) like that (laughs) so just quickly before we finish you have your next book out The Envy of Paradise and that continues to some degree the story of Begum Sahiba and other people Tell us a little bit about that. Just quickly, what happened to Begum Siba, Hazrat Mahal, and Wajid Ali Shah after the English took over the whole country and said India is now 
under Queen Victoria. I was really interested, and there's even less information about what happened to her afterwards. But so piecing some of that together and also just following her and him over the next two years was what was interesting to me. And so that's what this book follows. You have a character, Marianne Paris, is a manager of the Envy of Paradise Dancing School. Is she a real person or is she like a ma, a composite? She's a composite. Okay, yeah. but the other three people are all real yeah. people. Yes. So again, you <laughs> yeah. a lot of research involved. Yeah. My guest today has been Jocelyn Carlity, author of Amar and the Silkwing Pigeons, which you can buy at Skylark Bookshop, and author also of a new book coming out this October called The Envy of Paradise, which continues the story of some of the people that you will meet in Amar and the Silkwing Pigeons. Jocelyn, thank you so much. I, c- I have pages and pages of questions here I haven't even got to because I have so much more I want to talk to you about. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs> You're listening to Speaking of the Arts. Before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way onto your calendars. It is hot out, but you can feel the chill of midwinter at Maplewood Barn this weekend with their production of the Irving Berlin classic musical White Christmas. The show starts at 8pm tonight, tomorrow and Sunday night, and tickets are $12, and the show continues next weekend. At the University of Missouri's Rheinsberger Theatre, Ragtime the Musical, directed by Dr. Joy Powell, is in its final weekend. Evening performances start at 7 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a final 2pm matinee on Sunday, although I think there may only be tickets left for tonight. In Arrow Rock, the musical comedy 9 to 5 is in its opening weekend at the Lyceum Theatre, and there may be a handful of tickets left for the 8pm evening performances tonight and tomorrow, but all the matinees are sold out. At the Maples Rep Theatre in Macon, Buddy, the Buddy Holly story opens this weekend with performances at 7.30 tonight and 2pm tomorrow, as well as uh, matinees next Wednesday and Thursday. At the Mid-Missouri Art Alliance, gallery in Ashland there is an opening reception for their summer show entitled Two to Tango and that's free reception and it's open to all and it's tonight from 6 to 8pm and a Cafe Berlin tonight at 6pm Paul Weber and the Scrappers will have their album release party tomorrow morning from 10 to 11 the Boone History and Culture Centre continues its monthly Meet the Author series with a talk by Robert Long Foreman about his books among other things and a short story collection called Weird Pig Saturday afternoon at the Columbia Entertainment Company there will be an encore performance by Pay Youth Theatre of their production of 13 The Musical. There's only one performance and that is tomorrow afternoon at 2pm. Tomorrow evening at Resident Arts you can see the art of Amy Higgins winner of this year's University of Missouri Undergraduate Showcase. The reception for her show is from 6 to 9 and that's free and open to all. And at Talking Horse Theatre tomorrow night the Stable Boys are back with their long form improv in an action movie inspired show called Die Hardest. The show starts at 7.30 and tickets are $10 and I would definitely advise you to get your tickets in advance as the last couple of shows have been sell-out performances. Sunday evening, the Summer Concerts in the Gardens continues at Shelter Gardens with the Banana Oil Pan Band and that starts at 7. Alternatively, you can head over to Café Berlin at 8pm to hear a benefit concert for the Columbia Experimental Music Festival featuring Loose Loose and Nevada Green. At the Daniel Boone Regional Library next Tuesday, you can hear a talk by Mary Beth Brown called Murder, Mystery and Mayhem, where she talks about infamous events that rattled the Columbia community in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And at Rose Park next week's Tuesday night, Movies in the Park is Back to the Future, and that starts at 8.30 and it's free. Next Thursday, you can hear musical duo Shortleaf in concert at the Daniel Boone Regional Library's Friends Room from 7 till 8. It'll be a concert of high-energy music with Celtic and old-time roots. At the Lyceum Theatre in Arrow 
Rock. The second in the Lyceum Comedy Night, Ladies of Laughter events, is next Thursday, this time featuring comedians Kate Anderson and Jane Condon. Tickets are $28 and the evening has a PG-13 rating. At the Down Gallery in Sedalia, their Summer Nights concert series continues with the K Brothers and the Bernie Sisters on stage, and that's from 6 till 9 next Thursday. In Columbia, the first events in this year's Mizzou International Composers Festival start next Thursday with a pop-up concert by the Camille Ensemble at 1pm outside Sparky's Ice Cream on 9th Street. Plus, later on at 7.30, you can hear the opening concert of the 2019 festival when the award-winning ensemble Alarm Will Sound take to the Missouri Theatre stage. And tickets for all this year's festival are completely free. And rounding out the night next Thursday at Café Berlin, Bells Lontano creates an evening-long set mixing original electronic music with works by MU composers and the festival's resident composers. And that all gets underway at 9.30. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend, Sarah Caitlin, sitting in for Mike Hagen in the sound engineering seat. We'll be back next week with more news, views, and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.